Hey, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. Sunday was Cinco de Mayo, which probably doesn't mean what you think it means. It's the equivalent of Americans celebrating the Battle of 1812, but any excuse to drink margaritas. So while our show today isn't about Mexican independence, neither is Cinco de Mayo. First up, you can't have your grapes and drink them too if you also support building a wall. A documentary explains. There has been some sporadic reporting on the Mexican-American vintners and, and the kind of Latinx immigrant presence. But most of the time, from, from my perspective, the reporting has treated it as a kind of novelty as opposed to a kind of fundamental part of California wine. And then, is your love of mezcal killing mezcal? Agave, you have to treat it like a bank account. If you take a, a little amount of agave out of the earth, you have to put three times in. In January, Trump Vineyard Estates LLC filed a petition with the Department of Labor asking permission to hire 23 foreign guest workers. This is in addition to the six foreign guest workers they requested the previous month. This is nothing new. Every year in advance of the grape growing season, the Trump Winery, which is currently owned by Eric Trump, although the president has repeatedly referred to it as his winery, requests around 30 H-2A visas, which allow companies to bring over temporary foreign workers if they can't find qualified Americans to take the jobs. And it's not just Trump's winery. If you drink American wine, you almost certainly have a Mexican to thank for it. In his documentary, Harvest Season, Bernardo Ruiz follows the stories of the Mexicans and Mexican-Americans working in Napa vineyards, from the skilled farm workers who tend and harvest the crops, to the master blenders, to the winery owners. Harvest Season will be airing nationwide on PBS on May 13th, and we're happy it brings Bernardo into the studio today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So tell me, what drew you to this story? Well, I was just looking for an excuse to drink wine, really, for production. Good job. You found it. <laughs> No, I mean, the, the main reason is I, I've done, this is the third feature documentary that I've done, um, and I've obviously done a lot of uh, television and nonfiction programming, but a lot of it has focused on uh, the U.S.-Mexico narco conflict, and I really wanted to work on something that was a, a celebration of life or something that could be, tackle some of the same issues, but from a completely different vantage point and something that people would really be drawn to. And so that, that kind of brought me to California wine and the, the presence of the Mexican diaspora that for, you know, a variety of reasons has been, that story has really been neglected. There has been some sporadic reporting on the Mexican-American vintners and, and the kind of Latinx immigrant uh, presence. But most of the time, from, from my perspective, the reporting has treated it as a kind of novelty as opposed to a kind of fundamental part of California wine. Mm -hmm. So really, that was, what I, that was the task I set myself, uh, was just to explore that history and to highlight it in a way that would be compelling. Your previous film, Reportero, is about journalists and narco-trafficking, as you mentioned, and quite heavy, as people might imagine. Tell us about how you approached this subject, trying to address some of the same issues about immigration, but trying to also appeal to people who maybe love the film sideways. Yeah. You know, I, it was so obvious to anyone who's, who sets foot on a vineyard that the vast majority of labor is immigrant labor. So you're seeing an increasing Central American presence, but it is for the vast majority of it is from Mexico. And so all of these shows, for the most part, tend to celebrate the kind of front of the room, the chef, not the back of the room labor that's, that's really doing all this work. And so that, that perspective shift was something I was, was after. Um, I had another inspiration. There's this really beautiful film from 1999 called Sing Faster, The Ring Cycle. 
and it's about the staging of an opera, but all told from the point of view of the stagehands. So the makeup people, the lighting techs, everybody that makes the diva shine. And I thought, you know, if I can apply that, that idea to a film about wine, I think I might have something that would be worth, you know, worth watching. And you do focus on the entire supply chain, or almost the entire supply chain, from the sort of high-profile um, winery owner to a master blender to the people who are actually picking the crop. Can you talk a little bit about the decision to try and touch as many elements or areas of the wine process as possible? Yeah, you know, I think oftentimes, I think people, their eyes glaze over when they hear stories about immigration, unfortunately, despite it being such an urgent and um, really misunderstood topic in so many ways. What I think is less known are the entrepreneurs and artists who, you know, the the mom and pop producers who navigate this world. And that really drew me to Gustavo Brambilla's story and, and Vanessa Robledo. Um, Gustavo Brambilla is fascinating because he was kind of present at the birth of California wine. So in 1976, there was that famous uh, judgment at Paris, which was a blind taste test when uh, California wines defeated the French wines in this this blind taste test in in Paris, and it caused big shockwaves in the wine world. And, you know, that really, to a lot of people, that put California wines on the map. And Gustavo Brambilla is a young Mexican-American cellar worker was uh, working for one of the winning vineyards. Uh, What you see in the film is how he's basically been making wine for four decades as this, you know, very small producer, uh, hand-labeling his own bottles, selling directly to consumers. Um, But it's a story you don't hear a lot about, the the kind of Mexican-American vintners and the the entrepreneurs who are also, you know, a, a deep part of California wine. And Vanessa Robledo, who also has her own vineyard, um, she talks about how her great-grandfather came over as part of the Bracero program, and she comes from a family that knows grapes, that planted these own grapes, and now she herself has her own, has her own label. Yeah, I think, uh, to me, she's really the most compelling person in the film because she had that experience of having grandparents who came over during the Bracero program, which was this labor importation program. It was an agreement between the United States and Mexico and during World War II. And there's this deep history in her family. What you, what you see in the film is how she basically breaks away from this patriarchal system where her father believed that only the, 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 the male children should inherit the business. So she breaks away from that business uh, goes off with her mother, who divorces her father, and you see them uh, start this entirely new growing operation. And I think we have a clip from the film that focuses on Vanessa, so maybe we'll show that now. Great. Right now, because of the uncertainties of what's going on in our country, there's a lot of talk of bringing in machinery and eliminating labor. And it is very different to have a mass production versus small family vineyards. but. When you're a small company, you do have that luxury to be able to be more hands-on with the vineyards. So I'm getting the best flavors possible. So in this clip, Vanessa talks a little bit about how they're still harvesting by hand, but there is a a labor shortage. Can you tell me a little bit about that labor shortage? Sure. Um, So unsurprisingly, the anti-immigrant rhetoric, the hardening of the border, the increased scrutiny of, of immigrant communities that, that have you know, historically gone back and forth between the U.S. and Mexico, that has led in many areas to a labor shortage. One of the, the things that we see in the film is how vintners, including big 
powerful, wealthy vintners, how they're struggling to find uh, the labor that they require come harvest time. And it's one of the unintended or intended consequences that you uh, that you see as a result of some of these uh, egregious immigration policies and, and this rhetoric that's really, you know, criminalizing immigrant communities. You're also seeing a rise in mechanized viticulture. Robot pickers are machine harvesters that are still much rougher than human pickers, but we are seeing this trend of machine harvesters. So what you see in the film is Vanessa Robledo talking about how their operation is still small enough that they still have family ties to some of the people who are picking and that it's still an operation that's all done by hand. But that that way of, of picking and working during harvest is under threat. And I believe 90% of grapes, of, of wine grapes that are picked in California are, are picked by Mexicans. Is that right? It is. Um, it's a huge number. I, I think that's probably pretty, pretty accurate. Nobody obviously has the mm-hmm. exact number. Um, what we know is that across the country, 78% of I think it's very close to 80% of all agricultural workers uh, claim roots in Mexico. And so talk to me a little bit about Rene Reyes, who comes over on this H-2A visa. Um, One of the things that I was really struck by is that we think of farm work often as unskilled manual labor, and nothing could be farther from the truth when you watch him and some of these other men work. It is so incredibly difficult, and their hands move so fast. Our producer was like, I was wondering if that was sped up at all. Well, I really appreciate you you touching on that that issue because I think there is this idea, especially on people outside that people outside of agriculture have, that it's somehow unskilled labor, that it's just about being an ox, that it's just about being physically strong. And while the job uh, the jobs in the vineyards certainly require physical strength, there's a tremendous amount of skill. And one of the reasons the vintners don't rely on U.S.-born or you know American labor is that um, we've, for the most part, this country's lost touch with with agricultural traditions and skills. So a worker like Rene Reyes, who comes from the state of Michoacan, who's grown up his entire life working in agriculture, has skills like pruning, grafting, uh, planting, trimming, and and picking. All of these skills uh, are desperately uh, needed in in the wine industry, and yet uh, we we just really don't have those traditions in the U.S. anymore. So uh, the California wine industry, the grape industry, as many agricultural industries uh, throughout the U.S. rely on that skilled uh, Mexican labor. You know, again, it's it's part of this long history of um, you know parts of the U.S. needing the labor but not wanting to provide the benefits of citizenship or um, you know or even legal permanent residency to many of the workers who are doing this work. What I really wanted to do was create a film that would be beautiful and kind of woo viewers in, certainly those viewers who are interested in, in programs like Chef's Table and the Bourdain program, to, to bring them in and then to uh, kind of you know be a little bit of a Trojan horse, uh, quietly show them how this labor is fundamental. And the, the, the more that we continue to criminalize and villainize immigrant communities, uh, the more we risk losing these 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 things that are we, we think are so important to our lives right now. Um, I can't imagine a world without wine. I definitely wouldn't want to live in a don't in think a about world it. without wine. Um, you know, in in terms of the the, the guest worker program, uh, we've actually seen a massive spike in it. You you in the number of approvals from the Department of Labor, uh, kind of counterintuitively, you know, to the broader immigration debate. 
you, you're seeing a, a, a rapid rise in the number of guest worker visas that are being approved. And I think it has a lot to do. If you talk to vintners, what they'll say is um, historically they relied on undocumented or informal labor that just came across the border, um, did their work, and went back. There's a huge number of undocumented workers in, in California. Um, but as the, the threat of uh, raids and deportation, you know, as these threats have increased, you're seeing vintners really wanting to protect the labor that they do have. You profile a gentleman who runs one of these housing centers, and he talks about the tremendous need that he was seeing people, you know, who were homeless, who were sleeping under tarps in their cars. He talks about his own story about sleeping underneath an apricot tree, and then the irrigation came on at one in the morning, and he was soaked to the bone. Um, But then you also showed women workers, and I couldn't help but think, this must be exponentially harder for them. You know, this is a male-only housing center. Two men sleep to a room. Where do they go? They must be especially vulnerable um, as as women. You know, in the case of what we see in the film, you basically get a sense of how there's just no there's just no plan on the part of the county to to um, support or provide any kind of infrastructure for this this growing female labor force. And I I, I think you're, you're you know it, it's a debate that's growing. So let's talk about the fires. I assume that this was unexpected. You didn't start filming with the fires, correct? Right, correct. Yeah. Um, a lot of the footage, it looks, I mean, it's just, it's devastating, as were the fires. Were you there actually filming during the fires? Uh, we were. I, I was. I work with a very small team. I work with a cinematographer, uh, Victor Tarashi Suarez, for this this uh, this film. And um, we were hoping to wrap up. We thought, you know, we've we've got the bulk of our story. We think we have what we need. And then, you know, on the morning of October 9th of 2017, like everyone in that area, we were uh, completely caught caught off guard by these raging wildfires. Um, you know, ultimately, it, it claimed at least 44 lives. I mean, there was just acres and acres of devastation. As someone who's covered other conflict areas before, it was very shocking to cover Napa and Sonoma, which are these, you know, kind of luxury tourist destinations, uh, suddenly covered with FEMA trucks and, and helicopters um, and, and National Guard uh, troops. So it was it was a big surprise. It does provide a very dramatic uh, third act to the film, uh, both in terms of the you know the fires, the damage that happens, and then how everyone in the film um, how they kind of respond uh, to it. I, I will say they respond resiliently, which is I think oftentimes been the history of the Mexican immigrant diaspora in this in you know in this country. But you do see how the each one of the vintner, the grower, and the worker how they all responded to this huge tragedy. Mm-hmm. So you talked a little bit about how you didn't want to make a polemical film and you wanted to appeal to people who watch Chef's Table and maybe don't want anything too heavy. Um, And you use a very light touch, particularly with Donald Trump. He only appears on screen once and his policies are talked about by other people, um, but he feels sort of like a looming specter who you never really see. Can you talk a little bit about your decision about when to bring him in and how how to talk about him and his administration? Trump is a strong flavor, right? And you, you, <laughs> you add him into the blend, and you, you can really ruin the taste of, of something. He's a little tannic. <laughs> That's being very generous. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that kind of, the, I basically took the long view. And I thought, you know, the, the reality is that the kind of love-hate relationship that this country has with both immigrants and, and Mexico it's, it's a long one. You know, you look at the 1930s, during the era of the Great De- Depression, there were these mass uh, illegal deportations 
of people of Mexican descent, including citizens and non-citizens. You know, after the 1930s, then you have the Bracero program, where the U.S., because of a labor shortage, imports Mexican labor. After the, you know, the the, the 40s, you have Operation Wetback, and uh, Mexicans are again. Uh, deported, oftentimes illegally. So you have this kind of long-standing history, and I, I think, despite the egregious nature of the kind of moment we're in now, um, I, I think that the film takes a much broader view, and it basically says this is this is one part of this history, and it's there, it's present. You know, it's uh, Trump. You hear him briefly in the background. So I think for me, it was just more. It, it's a presence that's there. It's a kind of threat from the outside but that ultimately my focus and my interest is in to have like a, an intimate portrait of the participants in the film. The other characters who aren't in the film but whose presence I certainly felt um, are those of Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, who uh, Cesar Chavez was actually quite anti-immigrant labor and felt that the Bracero program and these um, guest worker visas uh, harmed the the cause right. of um, American-born farm workers. Can you talk a little bit about their legacy? And um, I was curious about, you know, I know that these are not U.S. citizens who are doing the majority of the work, but do they have the right to organize? Like, what type of safeguards have been put in place to protect them? It's a very interesting history in Napa and Sonoma in particular. So, you know, relative to other areas of agriculture and certainly relative to other grape growing regions in California, the rates are actually quite high. The rates for workers like Rene Reyes were between 15 and $16 an hour. So that's, you know, th- those are relative to other forms of agriculture, they're fairly decent. Many would argue that as a result of these higher rates, uh, it's been very hard for contemporary labor unions to take a hold, to take a foothold and, and, and really organize there. Uh, there is a lot of criticism of the H-2A guest worker program specifically for that question of organizing. When your immigration status is tied directly to your employer, uh, what kind of noise are you going to make? What kind of uh, rumblings are you going to make? But really, uh, what you see in the film is a reflection of where we are in this moment. And uh, the fact that there isn't a strong union presence there uh, is reflected in the film. Mm-hmm. One of the other things that was reflected that I think goes against potentially stereotypes that people have in their mind is that the workers who come over from Mexico want to get back to Mexico as soon as possible. And there's a scene after the fire uh, where they talk about, you know, I hope we can get back to work soon because every day you're not working is another day longer that you're separated from your family. Were you surprised by that at all? Um, you know, I I was born in Mexico. I was born in Guanajuato. And I have lots of relatives who've come back and forth and lots of friends and family uh, over the years. And that doesn't surprise me. I mean, I think the, the right to, to move and, you know, uh, go back and forth to, to go where there are opportunities. Um, you know, I consider it a human right. I think a lot of, a lot of people do. Uh, and that doesn't surprise me. Um, I, I think we run into trouble when we begin hardening the border the way we have now. I mean, um, anybody who does reporting on organized crime will tell you that the best thing that can happen to a so-called cartel or organized crime group is um, <laughs> increased uh, border security because it uh, increases the demand for their services. Right? right. So, no, it didn't surprise me that workers, um, given the choice, would want to go back and forth. You know, the other thing is that you just I, – I, I can't think of a single uh, film on wine that touches on uh, Latinos or 
Mexican immigrant labor. I mean, they're just they're the, the fact that that story hadn't been told. I think to me was a, a, an interesting aspect of this story. What is something that you hope that audiences take away from it? You know, I hope they uh, curl up with a glass of wine. You know, in this case, it's PBS and chill. Not not cool. <laughs> <laughs> right, not, not, right. Not, Very not, as cool. Yeah. not as cool. Not as cool. No, I th- listen. I think that um, the the main takeaway is I, I think the film is really a love letter to the the Mexican diaspora at a time when there's so much, you know, absurd, irrational rhetoric uh, that's being deployed against immigrant communities. And this is just a very kind of quiet take that that shows the opposite. You know, whether demagogues like it or not, whether, you know, loudmouth politicians like it or not, the reality is that the, the presence of Mexicans in this country it, it will continue. I mean, it's at least 10% of the United States population uh, claims roots in Mexico. The broader Latino population is 17, 18%. These communities are only going to grow, continue to thrive and grow, uh, despite the overheated rhetoric of, of these figures. Bernardo, the film is Harvest Season. Tell us once again where people can see it. So it'll air on, on PBS, on Independent Lens, on Monday, May 13th. And then it'll also be streaming um, on iTunes, Amazon, and a couple of other platforms. Uh, and if people want inf- more information, they can, can go on to harvestseasonmovie.com. Great. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. you guys spent your Cinco de Mayo drinking endless margaritas, eating delicious tacos, and agitating against the racially motivated and inhumane policies that our administration is enacting at the southern border. Pass the guac! In honor of Cinco de Drinco, today we're going to talk about mezcal, the Mexican spirit that has gone from relative obscurity in the states to what you order when you're trying to signal to a date that you used to love Tulum, but it's kind of over. But does the meteoric rise in mezcal's popularity signal the end of mezcal as we know it? Here to talk about the sustainability of your mezcal habit is Camille Laloba Austin, the national brand ambassador for Montalobos Mezcal. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. How did you get this nickname? Did this predate your work with Montalobos? Well, it it actually started with my work with Montalobos about five years ago. And um, I just, out of the blue, I said, well, if I'm going to be an ambassador for this brand, I guess you should call me Laloba. And I became the Mezcal She-Wolf. And here you (laughs) are. Just like that. So what is Mezcal and how is it different from tequila? Well, they're certainly related, but a lot of people like to call mezcal tequila smoky cousin, and it's actually not. It dates uh, further back than that. It's I like to consider mezcal as its smoky grandfather. So if you look at cognac and brandy, you have brandy as the overarching category, and then cognac is a very specific type of brandy with its own appellation um, and made with its very set of rules and regulations, and that's what tequila is to mezcal. So tequila is a type of mezcal. Yes, 100%. And talk to me about this smokiness, because not all mezcal is smoky, but I think that people think about that sort of smoke factor when they're ordering mezcal. Absolutely, and it, it, it is... A small distinctive element, but it's certainly not the the main one or the most important one. And we get the smoke 
only because of how we're cooking down these agaves and we use an underground brick or stone oven to cook the agaves down several days at a time. So it's just like if you were making a barbecue. Of course, the smoke will carry over, but it's not the most important element in the taste of mezcal. And describe the agave plant to me. This is what mezcal is derived from. Oh, 100%. It's one of the most complex and complicated and evolved raw materials that we use to make spirits. Um, there's a Mexican proverb that says that mezcal is the only beverage on the planet that was born aged because in order to make mezcal, we're waiting at least anywhere from eight to 10 years for these agaves to mature. They have tons of turpins and we, you can kind of explain it as a, a big internal cocktail of different botanicals and herbs and flavors. And all of those are flavors that come out through the final product that is mezcal. And when you see an agave, it sort of looks like a gigantic version of the cute succulent it does. you might have it uh, does. at home. And what do you what do you mean when you say turpins? Um, so these are just essentially botanicals or essential oils that the that the agave plant has inside of it that allows us to achieve these amazing herbaceous flavors, the citric notes, the floral notes. All of those lie in the agave plant in these essential oils, if you will. And mezcal has exploded as a spirits category in the last five to 10 years. Would you say that's correct? 100%. Why do you think that is? I think we're living in a time period of we really want to know where our food is coming from and we want to know who makes it. Is it sustainable? Is it local? And this is a beverage that tells every single one of those stories. It really tells um, the story of origin of the place where it comes from and the person who made it. If you look at mezcal labels, even if we were sitting here in a mezcaleria, they detail a lot more of the production than any other spirit does because a lot of these are produced, you know, very remotely in a very small village and in a very small batch. So I think that it kind of ties in with just with the moment that we're living in. So what I want to talk about um, is some of the things that have come up in your description of mezcal is the fact that it takes 8 to 10 to 15 years for these agaves to mature and be ready for harvest. The fact that a lot of it is small batch, small producer. Is our love of mezcal killing mezcal? Is this a sustainable spirit? Will there be mezcal for future generations? Will there be agave plants for future generations? I think there will be agave, but I think it's like everything in life. We we will have to adapt. And, you know, th this is 100% a hot topic with with purists, with mezcaleros, and, and people want to try the rarest form of agaves, and they think that they're disappearing. But the reality is a lot of producers are taking steps and strides to make sure that we do have mezcal on, on many levels. First of all, you know, there's several brands that are working to build nurseries within their their plantations and rescue uh, species of agaves that are endangered and replanting. Um, and if our founder, Yvonne, was here, he would say, you know, agave, you have to treat it like a bank account. If you take a, a little amount of agave out of the earth, you have to put three times in that amount that you took out. So I think that none of us really know where it's going to be, but there's certainly a lot of measures being taken to, to adapt to what the demand is. And traditionally, these agaves would be um, grown in the wild and then harvested. But agave producers are now cultivating agave. And Montalobos is cultivating as well, right? We only make mezcal from cultivated agave varieties. Um, our founder has a PhD in biochemistry. So, you know, he's a biologist and 
he just does not believe in harvesting something from the wild. And, and, and many brands are moving towards that route as well. So maybe we can taste some oh, of the things the that you fun brought. Part. Yes. And I think that there's a, a misconception that agave is agave, but that's sort of like saying that wine is made from grapes. Um, so tell me a little bit about the different types of agave. In particular, you're pouring one right now that's espadín. What is that? This is espadín. So what I love about mezcal labels is that they really detail so much about um, the, div- the diversity of the category. Espadín is the most common varietal used to make mezcal because it's readily available, it's very abundant, and it's an an agave where its heart, or its piña, like we like to call it in mezcal talk, grows really big and it's full of that beautiful sugar that we need to produce mezcal. This one is uh, around a nine-year-old espadín, and this flavor profile that you're having right now is going to be completely... Complex with a lot of different flavors as far as a little bit of sweet agave. You have some of that eucalyptus, that mint, that herbaceousness. You do get a little bit of the smoke from the underground pit cooking. And you also get a little bit of those funky flavors from the wild fermentation. Um, But you get it in a really beautiful, balanced sensory experience. It's very approachable, very easy to sip neat. Contrast that to the tobala that you've also brought. The tobala is an agave that grows to maturity, um, physically a little bit smaller than the espadín. We're actually going over to another region of mezcal production. The first one that you had was Oaxaca, which is kind of the hub of all mezcal because it's filled with tons of beautiful microclimates that give us a lot of agave diversity. We're going to go further north to Puebla, And this one is 100% cultivated tobala, but the flavor profile on this one is going to be so much more vegetal. So what you're going to get is beautiful notes of green pepper and pear and basil with a touch of umami like truffle. And this one is just absolutely, it's, it's different. And this is so much of one of my favorites right now. It's great. It is a little bit more savory, I guess, for lack of a better word. But one of the things that you mentioned there is that there are different growing regions. So as opposed to tequila, which can only be grown in Jalisco, um, Mm -hmm. there are nine different Mexican states that can produce mezcal. Is that right? That's correct. And and actually, the tequila region um, was inspired by the town of tequila that is, is in Jalisco. However, there's also four other states that are in the denomination of origin for tequila. There's nine right now for mezcal. Mezcal is really, truly produced all over Mexico. You just can't pop mezcal, the word mezcal, on your label. It has to be called agave distillate. But I would not be surprised if we start seeing more states very quickly turn up in the denomination of origin. So that seems like another way that we are looking to the sustainability of mezcal. Absolutely. So both by um, turning to cultivated agave instead of hunting 15-year-old wild agave. Of course. Uh, and expanding this this DO region. And expanding the regions and trying, trying different flavor profiles and um, different terroirs. You know, that's, that's a great way... As, for us as consumers to really keep up and, and make sure that everything's evened out. And even adding to supporting the families that produce in those 
lesser known regions. So I'm curious about that because often when you have a spirit or any other agricultural product really um, that has traditionally been produced by small family farmers, you wonder, are they reaping any of the rewards of this boom? So how does Montalobos and the rest of the mezcal industry, how do they ensure that these small family farmers are being taken care of and that there's going to be future generations of farmers who want to stay on the land? Well, we have a a really great relationship with each of our mezcal producing families. We only produce in two palenques. Palenque is the name of a mezcal distillery. And we work with two families only. But what's great about Montelobos is we have a full partnership with each one of those. And the only mezcal that's produced in each one of those distilleries or palenques is, is Montelobos. So as far as, you know, making sure that they are taken care of, I mean, the land is as much theirs as it is ours, as well as the production site. And in the case of our Oaxacan production site, we are now seeing the fifth generation of the Lopez family that are now going to London to study English and coming back and helping us host the groups when we have visitors and really talking about their heritage, but they're able to do so themselves instead of needing a translator. So those are ways that we're really looking to the future and they're very, very important to us. And finally, we can't talk about sustainability without talking about the environment. So talk to me about the environmental impact of mezcal production. After you pulp the the heart of the piña, what happens to it? Well, we extract everything, and this is another, another great opportunity to move towards a more sustainable production because you're left with fiber, right? It's called bagasso. So there's so many endless possibilities of what a producer could do with that bagasso. We can make bricks with that to build homes. We can compost it. Um, currently in our, in our Palenque in Oaxaca, we are investing a lot in a really huge composting system so that we're able to reuse that to fertilize our soil and continue to make mezcal for the future. So it's all kind of a cycle and there is one element of heritage and of the culture of mezcal, which is, you know, passed down from generations, but it's up to us with the knowledge and the innovation of the future to be able to continue that tradition for many years to come. And my last question to you is, if somebody is interested in Mezcal or has discovered that they have a taste for it, what are questions that they can be asking um, a knowledgeable bartender about the Mezcal if they want to make sure that they are supporting the sustainable production of the spirit? Yeah, I think a great exercise is just to go to your local Mezcaleria and sit there when it's not very busy, maybe when they just opened around you know 4 or 5 p.m., and ask as many questions as you can and ask also to see the bottles because the labels will tell you a lot. Of course, start with sipping if you wanna get into mezcal with sipping espadín because it is the most common and what's most available. Um, But ask about other regions and ask about the families producing it and ask whether they are producing in an industrial way or in an artisanal way or even an ancestral way. So all of these are really kind of elements where you can choose and the bartender can guide you in order to support those families that are really doing it the right way. Great. Camille, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. That's the show for today. If you liked what you heard, the best way to let us know is hearty applause or by reviewing 112BK on iTunes. And please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. 
112BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Point Zolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 